0: Well, good morning and welcome to Mid-Valley Bible Church and what we hope will be just one or two of these virtual services. You know, as I was driving into church today, I thought of a comment that my dad made more than four decades ago when I first went into the ministry. I remember dad was offering some advice and he said the following. He said, it's hard to preach to an empty chair. There's a lot of wisdom in that. You know, we're here at Mid-Valley Bible Church and there's just, uh, well, four people out there that I see, all of us practicing good social distancing, but we are hopeful that we as a church can get through this crisis, and indeed it is just that, a crisis, and hopefully within the next few weeks we're going to be able to get together. But I want to just begin this service by mentioning a couple of things. First of all, I want to encourage you to be checking on one another on a regular basis, Hopefully all of you have on your smartphone a church directory. And this is a wonderful tool that is in place for us to go through and look at everybody here who also have a picture of them and just use that to stay in contact with one another. I want to really encourage you uh, to do that. I also want to mention, and it's just an important reality of our day, And that is, we do need you as a church family to continue with your giving. Somebody called me the other day and said, I need to get the address of the church. I want to send in my gift to the church. And that was so encouraging to me. But if you would like, you can send in your gifts either by check, by snail mail, send it to our post office box, or you can do it through the giving app that we have available. And we encourage you to do that as well. But these are very, very challenging times for us as a church and for us as a nation, us as a state, us as a family. And so it's very important that we begin with a word of prayer and just ask God to really bless our church and give wisdom to our leaders. Let's pray together. Father, we are ever so grateful that in the midst of this very challenging time, we can with absolute confidence know that you are in control. And that the events of these last few weeks have not caught you by surprise, while they certainly have caught us by surprise and, and changed in a very profound way many of our lives, perhaps for the, as long as we live. We pray, Lord, that we would realize that you are still there for us and that you will meet our every need. Grant that we would not be those who are characterized by panic and fear, but rather a steadfast faith and confidence in you. And Lord, I want to pray your blessing upon this time that is ours together this morning. We pray that you would speak to us through your word and that, Lord, we would be a people who, as we gather in this virtual service, would realize that the church is not made up of a building or a location. It's made up of people. And so no matter where we are scattered throughout the Salt Lake Valley and even those that might be watching at great distances... We pray that we would realize that we're part of the body of Christ and that we can pray for one another and encourage one another. And so, Lord, we commit this service to you, asking for your blessing in our hour together. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1926, Sinclair Lewis wrote a satirical novel entitled Elmer Gantry. Later in 1960, it became a movie starring Burt Lancaster, for which he won an Oscar, In fact, his only Oscar as Best Actor. But in that book, as well as in the movie, it tells the story of a preacher who turns out to be nothing but a con man. He peddles religion for all the wrong reason. And in that book, there's a preacher who is debating and struggling with whether or not he should stay in the ministry. In fact, he's thinking of turning away from God. And in that novel... Sinclair writes regarding this dialogue that takes place between Elmer Gantry and this other preacher. The other preacher says the following. If there is a God of love, why didn't he make good health contagious instead of disease? Seems to me that that's a question that many today are asking. Why is it that viruses spread and are contagious and kill and good health does not. Again, during this time of national crises, and make no mistake about it, this is a crisis, that is one of the questions that people are asking. I mean, think about it. Who would have believed just a month ago that we would be where we are today, today? You know, I don't need to review all of the issues that we are facing related to physical health and economic uncertainty and the loss of jobs. But people are understandably concerned, and in some cases, they're panicking. And so I want to ask a very simple question, and it's this. How should you and I respond in a crisis? And I want to start by addressing certain misconceptions that I think are out there, and there are certainly more than these three, But I think these are three that are very important for us to remember. I think the first misconception is this, that this is a crisis that will disappear quickly. I hope so, but the reality is it probably will not. Fact of the matter is, things are probably going to get worse before they get better. And it's going to be a long time before we get back to normal. Again, I hope they do return to a degree of normalcy soon. But the reality is, it may not. I think there's a second misconception, and it's this. And that is that something like this has never happened before. When you look at history and in the Old Testament scriptures, you discover that pestilence and plagues have happened throughout time. Cholera, bubonic plague, smallpox, influenza are some of the most brutal killers in human history. In preparation for this, I read that plagues have killed anywhere between 300 and 500 million people. In my lifetime alone, at its peak during the years 2005 to 2012, the HIV-AIDS pandemic killed 36 million people worldwide. The Hong Kong flu in 1968 killed a total of 1 million people. The Asian flu in 1956 through 1958 had a death toll of 2 million people. According to the CDC, in in 2017 through 2018, influenza killed 46,000 to 95,000 people here in the USA alone. In the 14th century, 75 to 100 million people were killed by the Black Death of Europe. And then in 1917, the Spanish flu killed 75 million people. And here's my point. We've been here before. This is not something new. But there's a third misconception, and it's this. That this pandemic will increase the number of deaths. Now, I want you to hear me carefully when I say this, because I don't want to appear to be cold and calloused and uncaring or hard-hearted. But here's the reality. We are all going to die. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die. And the statistics on death are pretty impressive. It was Woody Allen who said he wasn't afraid of death. He just didn't want to be there when it happened. And I think a lot of people feel that way. COVID-19 is not going to increase the number of people who die because we all are going to die. C.S. Lewis made this point in World War II when Great Britain was being bombed relentlessly by the Germans. And the fear on the part of the Allied forces was that the Germans... We're going to develop the atomic bomb before the Americans did. They would get there first. And Lewis reminded his fellow citizens that they were sentenced to death before the bomb was ever invented. Now to be sure, we want to stave off death as far as we can. We want to do what the professionals say. We want to obey the government and healthcare leaders. We don't want to act irresponsibly or recklessly. We want to exercise due diligence in every area. But reality is that all of us are going to die. And as much as I look forward to heaven and as much as I love Jesus, I love life as well. I've told my grandkids I want to dance at their wedding, and that's true. But we're all going to die. And we want to make that as difficult and as far off as possible. So the question that I want to ask and answer this morning is this, how do we face the uncertainty of these days? Well, I think the answer to that is found in a story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, in the experience of the fourth king of Judah, a man named Jehoshaphat. Now, if you're not familiar with his story and his life, let me set the scene for you. Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings of Judah. You remember after the kingship of Solomon in 931 B.C., the 12 tribes of Israel had a civil war and they split into two nations. The 10 tribes in the north were called Israel, the two tribes in the south were called Judah. And Jehoshaphat assumed the throne at the age of 35 following the death of his daddy, King Asa. And he ruled for 25 years. And even though he made his fair share of mistakes, for the most part, he was a good king. And when you come to chapter 20, he's got his act together. And he's facing a crisis. Because assembled on the borders of Judah at that time are three countries with their armies about to attack the Boabites, the Ammonites, and the Mennonites. And these countries had armies that were more powerful and bigger than theirs. And Jehoshaphat and his army didn't stand a chance. These armies were coming in to wipe them out, and things did not look good. And they were afraid, and they had good reason to be so. And what Jehoshaphat does is he gathers all the people together, in fact, we're told that he gathers the infants, women, and children, and all the army, all the men, and everybody's there, and he challenges them to turn their attention to the Lord. And people are told to fast, and they're told to pray. And it says the following in verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 20 It says, O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great horde who are coming against us nor do we know what to do but our eyes are on you and i can't imagine what that must have been like knowing that there was this horde of army about ready to invade their land and absolutely destroy them And verse 13 says that all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children, and they didn't know what to do. Friend, I think this is so relevant for us today. Because the reality is there's a lot of frightened people out there, with good reason. I don't want to minimize this pandemic. Confession's good for the soul and poor for the reputation. But these last two weeks, I've really had... A roller coaster of emotion I thought about all of the plans that I had in place that radically changed up until a few weeks back my plans what I wanted to accomplish in my life were right on target and now they've been shot to pieces and chances are that my situation is yours It may be that you're a small business owner and you're right on the edge of collapse. Maybe you work for a small business and you may lose your job. And there's going to be some tremendous ripple effects that are going to impact every one of us. But I want to suggest that the first lesson that you and I can learn from Jehoshaphat for how to face a crisis is simply this. What you and I need to do is we need to determine that we are going to pray and not panic. That's what you find these people doing. They come before God. They call a fast which shows how desperate they are and how serious they are. They repent, they deal with their sin, and they pray. And they claim the promises of God. It says in verse 6, they said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler of all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. And then notice very carefully what he says next. He said, Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever?" They have lived in it and have built it, built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine? We will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. He goes on, it says, Now behold the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. They turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you gave us as an inheritance. Friend, what were these people doing? They were praying. They were claiming the promises that God had made to them. You may be saying, and rightly so, well, Doug, we're not Israel, and that's certainly true. But you know what you and I need to do during these times of crises? We need to claim the promises of God. For example, we need to claim the promise that Jesus gave in John 14 where he said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way you are going. Or how about the words of Jesus found in Luke 12, where he said to his disciples, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, he said. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than the birds. Jesus says elsewhere that the very hairs of our head are numbered. He's telling us that he's got us covered. Hebrews thirteen five says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You know, it's difficult to see in the English, but in the original Greek text, five times over, it says, I never, 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 will leave nor forsake you or how about the promise in James where it says that if you and I lack wisdom we can ask from God and he will give it to us liberally friend these are the promises that you and I need to claim and as I was reflecting on this I realized that we only have ourselves to blame for the mess that we're in (laughs) you say to me Doug how so Well, if you're like me, one of the things that you've been doing is you've been praying for revival. We've been praying that God would show up in our midst and do something radical to bring our nation back to God. To get Christians and our churches serious about the things that matter. And friend, this may just be the medicine that God is sending our way for that to be accomplished. We need to call on God in desperation like Jehoshaphat and his people did. We need to say, oh God, do a work in me and my family and in my church and among my people. God, deliver us. God, be our king. God, we need a miracle. We need godly wisdom. And we are desperate for you to show up. Listen, God loves desperate, deep, sustained, repentant prayers. So the first thing we need to do is we need to pray and not panic. But secondly, we need to determine that we are going to praise and we're not going to flee. We need to go into this battle, and it indeed is just that, with joy and with singing. You know, I wish I had time to develop this more fully But in verse 14, the prophet shows up, and his name is Jehaziel. And the prophet speaks. And this is what he says in verse 15. He says, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for this battle is not yours, but God's. And he goes on and he says, Tomorrow you're going to have victory because the battle is God's, not yours. And then in verse 18, he says, you're not going to have to fight. Just stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. And as you read that chapter, you discover that the people fall down, and there's a national revival. And here's what's so exciting about this chapter as you read it. You know who leads the army into battle? You know who goes first singing and praising? It's the singers of Israel. In other words, the army follows the singers. When they go into battle, those leading the charge is really kind of, well, it's the worship team it's Tim Frost, it's Matt Gunter, it's Dave Thomas. And as those who are singing praises to God go into the conflict with joy, praise, and singing, God gives them the victory. You know, I love the story that's found in Acts 16 where Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown into prison. And they just are absolutely just beaten almost to the point of death. And they're thrown into that prison in one of the worst places imaginable in the first century. And what do you find them doing in Acts 16, verse 25? It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Praise, joy, and thanksgiving birth victory in our heart. Singing moves us from panic and fleeting and defeat to blessing and victory. We face the enemy with God on our side. You know, I love the story of Joseph Scriven, who lived in Ireland in the early 19th century. He fell in love with a beautiful woman and he was eager to spend his life with her and her life with him, and the two became engaged. They came from a wealthy family, had tremendous promise, he was well educated, and they had a great future ahead of them. But on the day before their wedding, she fell from her horse while crossing a bridge over the River Bain and was drowned in the water below. And Joseph stood helplessly watching from the other side, unable to do anything. He was so grief-stricken that he began to wander, and he moved from Ireland to Canada. And there he met a wonderful young lady, and again he fell in love, and they too planned to be married. However, tragically, she died of pneumonia before they could wed. And at that point, he realized that perhaps it was God's will that he go through life single. And so he began to care for the impoverished widows and sick people around him. And he got word that his mother in Ireland was sick, and so he sent her a poem. Later when asked who wrote it, he said, the Lord and I did it between us. It was a poem that was never intended to be seen by others, but here's what he wrote. He wrote, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Can I remind you that if we are going to go into this battle and come out on the other side with victory, we need to go into this conflict with praise and singing and with joy. Now, there's a third lesson And it's simply this, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of crises, we need to realize that God is in control. You know, as you read this story unfolding, they sat back and they realized that God was going to give them the victory because he was in control. And again, as you read the chapter in its entirety, you discover that God routed the enemy. And they were destroyed. I'm going to close by just mentioning three very important truths that you and I need to remember. These are truths that dovetail with this story, but they come to us from the New Testament. And the first lesson is this. God does not have to deliver us to prove his faithfulness. God does not have to deliver us To prove his faithfulness. You know, I wish I could say that God always gives us the victory down here. But that's not the case. Sometimes in this life we have setbacks. Big time. But God is still in control. He's still faithful. He still loves us which is why I love the words of Romans 8, where it says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, in the midst of this COVID-19 crises, God is still in control. The second lesson is this. God uses crises to give us an opportunity to declare our witness. You know, I hope that your response to all of this is markedly different than that of your unbelieving neighbor or your coworker. Christians handle, or at least they ought to handle differently, stress and crises and difficulties. You know, one of the great church leaders in the third century was the Bishop of Carthage in North Africa named Cyprian. And during his time as bishop from the year A.D. 249 to 262, North Africa experienced a plague that killed tens of thousands of people. It's called, interestingly, the Plague of Cyprian. And the reason it's named that is because Cyprian wrote about it in great detail. In fact, you can actually read about it on the Internet. Last night as I was reading it, just the description he gives of this this terrible plague will literally make you ill. He would later die a martyr as Roman authorities beheaded him. But what he said was this, that this plague, this crisis that they went through was one of the greatest blessings for the church because it allowed Christians to demonstrate their faith as they faced death. And here was how Cyprian said the pagans described a Christian's burial. He said, they said, they carried their dead as if they were in triumph. They carried their dead as if they were in triumph. For in this COVID-19 crisis is a great opportunity for us as a church to show the world how we respond to adversity. This is not the time for us to stop serving, or giving, or ministering, or modeling to others, this is a time for this crisis to reveal our character and our steadfast faith. Now there's one more lesson, and it's simply this. God is most glorified when we look beyond this world to the next. For those of you who received my Friday mailings, you know that I mentioned that last Friday morning, Connie and I went to visit Joe Harris, who's one of the precious saints of this church. She's dying. She's on hospice care. She's not at all fearful of death. And as Connie and I were sitting there in her living room, and she was there seated on the couch in such pain, such obvious pain, she had her head down in her chest. And Connie said, Joe... are you thinking? And without missing a beat, she said heaven. Friend, let's keep this crisis in perspective. Let's keep it in light of eternity and heaven. Martin Rinkert was a Lutheran minister who lived in Ellenburg, Germany. He ministered during the 30-year war where 8 million people died from the war And from a plague that was related to it. He was the only surviving pastor in that city where he ministered for 32 years. And in one year's time alone, he had more than 4,000 funerals, including the funeral of his own wife. On one occasion, he had a massive funeral for more than 50 people during one day. And here's what's amazing. While he was going through all of this, he wrote the following. Now thank we all our God, with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done, in whom the world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way, with countless gifts of love, and still is our day. The final stanza goes like this, all praise and thanks to God. The Father now be given, the Son and him who reigns with them in highest heaven. The one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore, for thus it was his now and shall be ever more. My friend, I don't want to appear at all cavalier or insensitive to this crisis. And it indeed is that. But let's keep it in perspective. Let's realize that God is still in control. And there's one final point I want to make, and that is this. As seemingly vicious and out of control as the COVID-19 virus may seem to be, the greatest virus affecting mankind is the virus of sin. You see, the Bible says that we've all been infected with a spiritual disease called sin. And the result of that disease is not just physical death, it's also spiritual death. But the reality is that Jesus Christ has taken that disease called sin and he paid for it with his his death on the cross. And he died in your place and he made a full and complete payment for sin. And so this morning, if you're listening to this message and you've never trusted Christ, we'd invite you to acknowledge before God that you're a sinner, that Christ died for you. And we'd invite you to put your faith and your trust in Christ and Christ alone. If you're watching online and you've never contacted us and you make that decision, would you do give us the joy of just knowing of your decision to trust Christ? We'd love to help you in your walk with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of Jehoshaphat. And even though as you read his story found there in 2 Chronicles, we readily acknowledge that he was far from a perfect man. He made his share of mistakes. He had his shortcomings. And yet, Father, in chapter 20, he exemplifies a model of faithfulness and a commitment to you. And we pray that we would follow his example We pray that you, by your Spirit, would seal these truths to our hearts, to the end that we would leave here confident and rejoicing, that in the midst of this crisis, we can look to the future with confidence. We can go into the battle singing joyfully and with thanksgiving in our heart. We ask that you would just bless us, dismiss us with your blessing, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.